I hope you're doing well. As you can probably tell, um, we're doing things a little bit different here um, this morning. Our whole service is going to be focused around communion because we took a three-week period of a break, abstaining from communion, for a few reasons. And we looked in the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in which it talks about that every person, when they come to the table of the Lord, that they need to examine themselves and to make sure they're discerning the body. And if not, that there, there could be something detrimental that would happen there. Because when we take partake of the symbol that represents Christ's body broken and his blood spilled for sin, it's an important thing we do together as a community of believers. And so we are going to, today's, today's whole service is focused around these elements, this symbol, and even as we go into the passage we're looking in the book of Philippians where we've been, so we'll be in Philippians chapter 2 today, um, we want to apply that and point that towards what it means to, be, to do communion together. And so, yes, we got some different type of bread today. We got some uh, certified kosher uh, unleavened bread. Uh, thank you, Kroger, okay, because you can't buy that anywhere else, okay? Kroger had that, and so we're going to come to that together. So if you would, if you got a Bible, please turn to Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen in a minute. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 5, where Paul talks about having the mind of Christ, the humble mind of Christ. And so in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, you all right, everybody? All right, I have to go ahead and confess something. The pollen has beaten me to death lately, okay? Like, I'm, I'm not feeling like the voice is a little bit raspy, so if I get, like, raspier and raspier, just bear with me, okay? You know, just turn the mic up more and more if you need to, and that, that'll be the case. So let's read Philippians together. I just want to give you a note. Why I'm not trying to, like, sound sultry, okay? It's just how it is, all right? So Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Yeah, we use sultry in church. Yeah, that's cool. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a, serv a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Remember last week we talked about Christ's humility in coming and dying, but it also noticed that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Verse 19 says, Therefore, through his humiliation and his obedience. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I wanted to read that and put that in context, because verse 12, verse 12 and following is going to talk about living, we were supposed to emulate, last week we looked at emulating Jesus and his humility. This week we're looking at emulating Jesus' obedience in our own lives. And so we pick up with the word therefore in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain nor labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Judson has been playing, my little boy has been playing t-ball. And we got our first t-ball win last night, okay? Um, no, yeah, 
No, Friday night. And it was a pretty cool thing, all right? But I don't know if you've ever noticed this, that people take youth sports a little too seriously. You ever seen that before? And uh, we won one. We've lost a bunch more than we've won. Uh, we won this one. But you know what's going to happen the next time we have a game? We're going to play that. We might win or lose that one. And so it's kind of forgotten. Some of you, if I asked you who won the, the Super Bowl 24, we're on like 53 now. If I, there would be like one or two of you who knew that. Some of you right now are trying to Google that on your phone, who won Super Bowl 24. But obviously, we probably don't remember who it was. There's so many things that can be fleeting in vain. You know, it's, it's good to teach your kids how to win, how to lose, and all that type of stuff. But what I am getting at is ultimately, if you win the T-ball championships, big whoop, you're not going to remember that when you're 24, okay, or whatever. And if you do, you got a real problem, okay? You got Uncle Rico syndrome. I throw the football over those mountains, okay? That's a very avant-garde example. But what I'm getting at for you and for me is this, that Paul here doesn't want his work to be in vain. And he wants the Philippians to continue on in their work and in their salvation. And he's, he's, he's said here, he's in prison. He might die. He might be released. He's, he's confident that the Lord will work in his situation as we look in Philippians. But he's in prison, and he's saying, listen, not only as you did in my, when I was there, but in my absence, you keep working out your salvation. You keep doing all these things so that my labor in, the, in Christ won't be in vain. And so what does, he, what does he say? He says then in these next sections, he gives us two ways that he wants us to emulate Jesus so that we won't put his work to shame, his work of the gospel. And so today, as we think about communion and we think about what it means to live life as a community of believers, having the mind of Christ and his humility, and also having the obedience of Christ, I want to point out two things to you in this text. So if you would, look in verse 12. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but also in my absence, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Immediately, especially as grace people, as people who believe in the grace of God, when you see work related to works related to salvation, you should get a little uncomfortable, okay? Because here, let me get you this. No human work, a good deed done, can make you right with God. The Bible's clear about that. But when we put works next to salvation, we get a little antsy because, like, are we about to talk about work salvation? No, that does not exist in the Bible. But I will I will point this out. Most people see salvation as part, like the initial salvation as turning to Jesus, conversion as all of salvation, and they forget that salvation is, a, is something that you're made right, declared righteous, but God is saving you and will one day save you completely when you go home to glory. That's the idea of, there's the idea of being right with God, declared righteous because of your faith in Jesus. That's called justification. And then you move to this part called sanctification, which is a big word that means that the Lord is working in you to make you more like him. And sanctification includes you working. Most of the time, we view, we view salvation as that one-time event conversion where we turn from our sins and trust Christ and we're made new, and that is the whole of salvation. But that's not how the Bible talks about salvation. It talks about salvation in different, different aspects. And a lot of times, we view obedience as the premium toppings at a restaurant. Do you know what I mean? I'm going to give you this one. So, like, you can, if you've ever been to, like, Road, uh, Texas Roadhouse or Logan's or wherever you go, and they have, like, you can order a steak, and then you can order the premium add-ons, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? And it comes, like, your food comes with, 
Are you, have you ever eaten at a restaurant? Everybody's looking at me like, I've never, what are you talking about, okay? There's some premium add-ons that you can do. For example, if you get, you get like a six-ounce steak, you could add shrimp to that, okay? And that's $5.99 upcharge, but if you're feeling really hungry or if it's an anniversary, you're like, bring on the crustaceans, all right? So that's what you may want to do. Or you can get bacon put on that thing. God bless it, okay? Um, you, you can get, uh, even some of this times, you can get a regular baked potato, but they're going to be like, do you want to load it up? And you're like, yes, okay, because that's bacon and sour cream and cheese, and like it's a heart attack on a potato, and you're like, yeah, I'll take that. And so most of us view salvation as it's the main dish, that it, what it comes with is eternal life and, and relationship with Jesus, but we forget, and we think that obedience and following Christ is something that's like the add-on later. Like, it's the premium upcharge. So salvation comes to us, and it comes with eternal life, and it comes with all these things. But the upcharge is, like, really, truly obeying, really, truly following Christ, really, truly repenting of sins, really, truly not living in sin, really denying yourself and following Jesus. That's the upcharge. That's for the super Christian. That's for the Christian who's got enough bank, enough bankroll to go and say, all right, I'm going to add on the obedience and the discipleship. Jesus is very clear, and Paul following suit, that unless you take up your cross and follow him, you have no place in him. So salvation is not just conversion and being made right with God by faith in Jesus, but it has other aspects and parts of it, including sanctification, which is what Paul is talking about here. And he's telling these believers to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Here, give me, get, let me get this. Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul talks about, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of good works so that no man could boast. In verse 10, right after that, it says, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Because if all your salvation amounted to was just get out of hell free and get into heaven and, and just have an eternal life, if that was all of your salvation, then why wouldn't he, the minute you were converted, not take you off the planet? Because you were created to work your salvation out. You're not saved by works, but when you're saved, you work and you follow and you go after God. You go after Jesus. You try to live a life worthy of that calling. You try to live in a way that you honor and worship that God. And so here is what we see in Philippians chapter 2 is that he says to these people, whether I'm there with you or I'm absent, Paul said to these believers, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Salvation is a call to follow Jesus, and a call to follow Jesus is a call to deny yourself and to do the works and emulate Jesus. And Jesus was obedient to the point of death on the cross we just read. And so the Christian life and the life that we follow should be full of us obeying God and obeying Christ and his teachings and working those things out. And listen, if you proclaim faith, but you have no no works to back it up, what's to say your faith is genuine? Can you see someone's faith? Mate, do they get like a, they get like a, like a spot or a, a tattoo or a, it would be great if that was the case because then you could see like, man, I'll tell you what, I wonder if they're in Christ and they'd be like, oh yeah, I got my, I got my Jesus tat right here, okay? All right, yeah, it's right here. I got my faith here, okay? Uh, that's what you'd want to see, but that's not how it works. Our actions show our faith. And so Paul encourages and, and calls these Christians that no matter their circumstances to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. This is not the fear 
of of a, of a beating. This is a holy, reverent fear of a God who is good and who is awesome. We know the difference between the two. Fear and trembling can happen in many different ways, but the fear we're talking about here is the fear of the Lord, the, the, that, you, that you, you think of him in such high regards that, and, and that you think of him as the Bible presents him in a way that you see him as great and glorious and that you want to follow and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the trembling can be brought on by, by many different things. But I want you to know something. If you've ever been overcome by the grace of God in your life, trembling is part of it. You probably said, why, God? And the answer is just because he's good. It's not because there's anything good in us. It's because it's, he's good. And the fear and trembling is how we're supposed to work that thinking about ourselves as thinking about our God, thinking about worshiping him and letting other people know. And then here's the good thing. So here's what we have here. Work out your salvation, which is human side, that we need to put work into working out our salvation. That we, not that we're saved by works, but that now, since we're saved, we must show our salvation to others and we must honor God through our good deeds and works whatever circumstances you may be in. And here's the good news. There's a tension in the Bible between human responsibility and things that we're supposed to do as human beings and divine sovereignty, which means God's control of everything. So we see in verse 13, it says that we're supposed to work out our salvation, us put forth the effort, us put forth the, the, the prayer, the, the study, the, the loving people, the loving our enemies, the, the doing of the good works, the feeding of the poor, all of those things, the sharing of the gospel, the, all of the ministry that we got to do, we, should, we have to work hard at that, fearing the Lord and trembling at his presence and because of his great love for us. That's how we're supposed to do it. But our works are not without divine sovereignty. In fact, left to our own devices, we can't do anything. Jesus would say, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Anyone who's apart from me cannot bear any fruit. Withers, and you've seen this because we're now in that season of landscaping. Cut off a branch from a tree. What's going to inevitably happen to it? It's probably going to, if it's me, it's probably going to sit in my yard for about two or three months till it decomposes, Okay because I don't throw it away, all right? If I do, I'm going to throw it in the, I got a wooded area over here. Like, that's where all the rubbish goes, is in that corner, okay? Maybe you're not like me. Maybe you're, like, super onto it, but that's what's going to happen to me. And what's going to happen to that branch is going to wither and decompose. It's not going to have life. And so here is the good thing. Here's the tension between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. And tension's a good thing. So what you know that? It is tension that's keeping this building up right now. You got I don't know how it's constructed. I hope it's done okay. All right, it's, it's made it this far. And the tension, you got the, the walls and everything, they're held by tension against one another. There's, there's, there's tension here that is keeping the walls and the roof up. They're put together. And so here's what I want you to see here. If we're left to just human works, we'll never see God. But if divine sovereignty does not call us to be passive, but it calls us to seek after God. Because look in verse 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, verse 12. Verse 13 says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice this. In verse 12, it says, work out your salvation. That's, no, that's for the believers to do. Work out your salvation. Put your salvation into practice. Then what does it say in verse 13? 
for God, for it is God who works in you. So while you're working, your working is coming from a God who's working in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So as you put forth the effort in living out your salvation, becoming more and more like Jesus, here's the thing. As you're doing that and you're exercising your will, the divine, the Jesus, God the Father, God the Spirit, they're working in us to give us the will and the ability to do works that will matter. We may not see it, but it's definitely there. Let me give you some ideas of what it looks like like when we're working it out, but God is really doing it. For example, have you ever fallen? And have you ever said, I'm not going to go there again? That's embrace God's heart and it screws my life up. I don't want any part of that. And then before you know it, two or three weeks later, you're back doing the same thing. The Lord comes through conviction and brings repentance, which means turning and you've been down low, and now you're walking, now you have been restored to walking in newness of life. All that happened within your spirit, that is not of you. Yes, you're thinking, your emotions are involved, and you're acting it out, and the repentance is a work, but who brought about the conviction of sins? The Spirit of God. Who gave you, who gives us the ability to overcome sin? We were slaves to sins. Now we're slaves to Christ. It's God's work in us. And so here is what we say. Anytime you see a work of grace in your life, you can thank God that he gave you the ability to do it. And you can also strive for more because knowing this, we meet him as we strive together for the sake of the gospel and for holiness. And we meet him there. We very rarely meet the Lord in our pleasures often meet him and see him in our difficult situations. It becomes more clear. And so here's the good thing. Church, hear me. We are to work out our salvation, work our fingers to the bone for the glory of God, to, to strive to be more holy, to strive after the word, to strive after prayer, to strive after sharing the gospel, to strive after being light in the community. We're supposed to strive in all those areas, and we're supposed to work our fingers to the bone to do it. But we know this, and we can't take any glory for those good works, because apart from the Spirit moving in our will and empowering us, our works will come to nothing. And I want you to get this. The church has always been full of people who are not necessarily the most power, but they are made powerful by God. If you think about the early church and these believers right here, most of the people in the early church were very poor. They were peasant class. They, there were a few Roman citizens and some who were, if you look at Acts, and there's a few people who were of prominence and position. But by and large, and we know this from church history as well, most of the people in the churches that were doing spirit-empowered work were people who did not have, on the outside looking in, um, from outsider perspective, they did not have all the education or the ability to do something powerful, but God worked through them. In fact, if you go and look at the, if you look at the, the Gospels, and you look at even the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes, they're all looking around like, do you hear these guys speaking in different languages? Aren't these guys rednecks? I mean, that's the, that's the kind of connotation here, okay? Aren't these guys like uneducated bumpkins? How are they speaking in all these different languages? 
Have you ever heard somebody with a real southern accent try to speak Spanish? It's fantastic. Hola, como estas? Okay? I mean, you're like, that's amazing. That's what these, on the day of Pentecost, it was got these guys with thick accents, and they're going, and they're like the country guys, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they start speaking, and first people think they're drunk, and then secondly, they're like, who are these people? These are like bumpkins. How are they speaking this language? It's the power of God. So, church, I call us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who puts the will in us and gives us the increase and works in us too. And in doing our good works, he meets us there. And that is what we, and this is not an individual thing. It's just something we're supposed to do corporately as well. Going on, work out your salvation. And then verse 14 says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Some of your translations may say grumbling or complaining. Verse 15 says, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as stars. Now, I want you to think, this is one of my favorite verses every time I've taken a youth trip. My wife will, and I say this at my house a lot, okay, too. I quote just the first part of this this thing. We hear there's some complaining, there's some grumbling, you know what I say? Do all things without grumbling and complaining. On On the youth trips, or you say, all right, we're going to go to Arby's. I don't like Arby's. Arby's has wrath in it. Okay, I hate Arby's. If you make me into Arby's, I'm going to kill myself. You know what? Philippians 2, 14. That's one you need to know, okay? Not 4, 13. I can do all things in Christ. Don't, no, no, no. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. Zip it. Okay? No. We're going to McDonald's. Okay? That's just what it is. Now, there's a picture here. And this is probably, a, Paul is probably quoting the Greek version of, Deuteronomy, of a passage in Deuteronomy, which is referring to the Israelite people and their wilderness wanderings. Do you guys remember that whole story? People of Israel in bondage in Egypt, God sends the plagues, and he lets the people go. Then they had the Red Sea thing, and Pharaoh and his armies are crushed as the parting of the Red Seas, and then they walk around because of their disobedience. Um, they walk around in the wilderness for a long time, and here's what the children of Israel constantly would do. It's hot. I'm tired. Have you heard this? Do you have children? Okay. Even if you're doing something fun, I'm hot. I'm tired. I, the same thing to eat again? Manna? Bread that shows up from heaven? Can we have something else? And what does God do? Sends quail. Just quail again? Free food? That sovereignly shows up. What? Okay. The cost of complaining. We don't have any water. What does he do? Water comes out of a rock. We don't know where to go. They got the first GPS system, which is a cloud of a pillar of, of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, leading them around. We don't know where we're going. It's hot. We'd be better in Egypt as slaves. You heard that before, maybe. He's referring to that. So get that picture in your mind. Do all things as, as someone who is obedient and is trying to have the obedience of Christ, not just the humility and the mind of Christ, but the obedience of Christ. Do all things. He's, com- he's commending this church of believers that they should do all the things that they do without grumbling or questioning. Now, this questioning is not asking genuine questions. 
those are totally fine. The questioning is more like complaining. Or when your kid is just being disrespectful and saying, why? 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 And you give them like two good reasons, and they're just like, why? Why are you doing that? Why? What are they trying to do? They're trying to get you to pull the rest of your hair out, okay? They're, they're trying to push your buttons. And what is it? It comes from a discontented spirit. It comes from a place that is not thankful. It comes from a lot of different places. And here, we can't just put it at children. Some adults get on Facebook glory, okay? And so you will see adult people doing the exact same thing, complaining about everything. Let me just say this. The fruit of the spirit is not complaining. The fruit of the spirit is not grumbling about everything, including... This is free, including political things. Get over it. Both sides, left and right, get over it. If you're in Christ, you need to love your enemy. If you're a Republican, that means a Democrat. If you're a Democrat, that means a Republican, okay? Love your enemy. It's free. That means also about many different things. Many different things, including school choice, public or private. Or home. Gluten, non-gluten. Whole thing. We are not to be cantankerous cranks. We are supposed to do all things in the church without grumbling and complaining. That we may be, look here, and here's a reason. That we may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I want you to just know that if you just, if you come to this place where grumbling and complaining were to be put to the back burner in your life and you were to talk about the blessings of God and to live contented in God, you would shine brightly in a culture that is full of grumbling and complaining and criticism. You would shine like a star. You would reflect the obedience of Jesus. Jesus on the cross, did he complain? He was being treated unfairly. Did he think that that was something to be grasped with his deity, to lay that down and become obedient to the point of death? No. Jesus gave up up his own rights. And remember, that's our prime example, going back up and have the mind of Christ amongst you, who, was hum- who humbled himself to the point of death on the cross, becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross, right? And so what did he do? Was Christ's life full of grumbling and complaining? No, it was full of contentment with God's sovereignty and, and doing. Jesus would regularly say, I must do this or that. He was on divine appointment. Now, obviously, we're not Jesus, but we are children of God through Christ, and we are called to be emulators of him and to have the mind of Christ and the obedience of Christ. And so grumbling and complaining are something that should be snuffed out so that we might look different in our behaviors and in our way of life than everybody else in a crooked and perverse generation. Now, this is not one of those... You ever heard somebody talk about the good old days as if there were good old days? I just want you to know this. The good old days, we're going to go back to the 20s, the teens, the Great Depression, World War I. 
Hmm. The good old days. Let's go back to that rationing. Oh, let's just go a little bit farther. You know what was really good when swing dancing was in? The 1940s, oh, wait, World War II. Oh, well, let's go to a different time. The 70s, Jimmy Carter, okay? <laughs> Gas rationing. 60s, too, Vietnam. That was a great one. Everything was real above board. Nixon, great, fantastic person. Okay, let's go on. When has it been good? It's a lie. It's a discontentment with God and his sovereignty. He's placed you purposely on this planet for a reason at this time. And it is not to be a grumbler or a complainer or to talk about how bad it is and how good it used to be. The point is to not grumble and complain, but to shine like stars, to show, to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twi twisted generation whom you shine as lights in the world. This is not a trying to practice your righteousness for other people to see it. This is, I want to emulate Jesus so that I might not be a grumbler and a complainer and that I might show a different way of life to, to other people. Not that you're trying to show it necessarily and say, come look at me, but you're trying to follow Jesus in such a way that people will see your life as different as an illumination of where to go. And that will involve, and we'll start here, there's obviously, for him to say, don't grumble and complain, there's obviously a problem in the church with a little bit of grumbling and complaining. You know, it stands to reason. And he's trying to nip it in the bud, right? He's trying to take care of that. Listen, in the church, first and foremost, we need to be those who are thinking about the positives thinking about following Jesus, thinking about how we can serve others, serve one another, love one another, encourage one another. And so this applies inside the church and outside the church so we might shine as lights and not grumble and complain. The next time you have a grumble and a complaint about the church or, or an elder or a deacon or somebody that's sitting next to you that's wearing too much perfume or is stinks for other reasons, whatever, or you get mad, or somebody does you, they think you done, they done you dirty, I want you to do this. I want you to think about three things God's doing in your life through the church before you say the one grumbling and complaining thing. Because you realize something? That one or two small things can undercut and ruin what God's doing in a lot of other areas. So I want to encourage you to shine like stars, to not grumble and complain. If you walked into your office or your place of business, or your place you work, and instead of doing the, I can't believe it's Monday, that weekend was so short, oh my gosh. I wish it was Friday already. And you talk about how bad your kids were that week, or how bad what your husband doesn't clean the dishes like me, or ever, um, or is a complete slob, okay? And then you, you do that. <laughs> It's just the truth. I'm not saying you. You don't usually dog me, okay? If you walked in and you talked about what God was doing in the life of your church as opposed to what's wrong in the life of your church, or if you start talking about how great it is that you have this spouse and that you have this salvation, that you're trying to follow Jesus, if you were to change the script, and how much would you shine in your office? Now, this has to be genuine, okay? 
disingenuous faith is very off-putting, right? That's why if you've ever been somewhere and you're like, how you doing, brother? And you're like, I want to punch you, okay? <laughs> Sometimes you just need to dial it back and be honest and real. This is a heart change thing. Then it goes on and says, finally, verse 16, how do you do this? How do you go about with grumbling and complaining? How do you shine a light of the world? Holding fast to the word of life. The Bible, the scriptures of God, they, they inform us on how to live lives that shine and how to live lives without grumbling and complaining. Part of that is to acknowledge that God's sovereign hand and his work in everything. Not that he is the one in charge of putting evil there, but he is the one who's ultimately in charge. And everything he brings your way is completely and utterly filtered by him. And then he goes on and says, So that in the day of Christ, I may be found that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul's goal and way of, of moving was so that he's encouraging them so that his work might not be in vain. That people would believe the gospel and that this church would flourish and survive. Those are imper imperative. That we model the humility of Christ in the church and we, we model the obedience of Christ in the church and in the world. Now, I'm going to invite the band up because we're going to do things a little bit differently today. And I want to read you two quotes, okay? And here they are. One by a guy named Rich Mullins. I don't know if you ever heard Rich Mullins before. He was a singer-songwriter in the 80s and 90s, okay? If you were a child of that time or in the church, you probably heard some of his songs. Um, he was a prolific songwriter and a follower of Jesus. And he said this. And this is, a, I'm reading off my phone because it was one of them screen grabs uh, from somebody who posted this. I never understood why going to church made you a hypocrite. Because nobody goes to church because they're perfect. If you got it all together, you don't need to go. You can go jogging with all the other perfect people on a Sunday morning. Every time you go to church, you're confessing again to yourself, to your family, to the people you pass on the way there, to the people who will greet you there, that you don't have it all together. And that you need their support. You need their direction. You need some accountability. You need some help. And we've looked at all these different things. I have your microphone, I just realized. If we look at all these things that we're called to do, it can be daunting to say, I'm supposed to live in this without grumbling and complaining? I'm supposed to live in such a way that people are seeing me as a light in the world? They're supposed to see Jesus in me? I can't do that, I'm on. And you're exactly right, you can't. You need to be empowered by the Spirit, and you need the body of Christ. That's why when we're coming to communion today, we're going to do it in a different way, and we're going to break off pieces of the same bread together. Because we are one in this together, and without us being here, we are not perfect. We're saved by grace, not good works. You, by stepping in the door, you're showing that you need Christ. And we come and do communion. We're saying again, we need Christ. We need him to help us. Without him willing and working in our lives, we won't do right. We won't follow him. We won't live holy. So we need Jesus. And the table says that we need Jesus, not individually, just individually, but we need Jesus corporately. <laughs> so the next time someone says, I don't go to church because they're hypocrites, you say, absolutely, we're all there. Please join us. 
Yep, I'm the biggest one. Come on. We got room for another. Unless you want to just hang out with all the perfect people outside. And then one last thing I want you to see. Another quote, another Facebook grab that just hit me. The single most important spiritual discipline of the follower of Christ is gathering with, co- with the covenant community each week to worship together. God gives us community for, among other things, the shaping of believers into the image of Jesus. Remember, all of this passage we read today comes from It's in context of being in one accord, in one body, of of striving together for the same mind, the church being united for the cause of Christ, having the humility of Christ and the obedience of Christ. We are called to be in this together. Individually, yes, but not having individual faith, absolutely. But more so than that, having a corporate faith together, exercising that community. You can't do this on your own. We can't be on the mission of Jesus on our own. We have to be in community on mission. We can't live as lights in the world on our own. We need each other. We can't, we can't do all things without grumbling and complaining without each other. We need each other, and we need Christ. And coming together, we say we are not perfect, but we need Jesus. So if you will, we're going to stand. I'm going to give Clint his mic back. We're going to sing and then celebrate communion together. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore at his table. Let's sing that together as a church. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore at his table. Come all you weary. Come all you weary. Come and find his yoke is easy. His burden line, he is able, he will restore at the table of the Lord. There is peace. There is peace at the table of the Lord. There is peace at the table the Lord I won't worry anymore at his table there's healing there is healing at the table of the Lord there is healing at the table of the Lord Whoa. 
suffer anymore at his table. Come on, you. joy will fill my heart with the saints around the mercy seat of God. Come on, church, let's sing this loud. Whom all you weary, come and find his yoke is easy. His burden line. He is able. He will restore at the table of the Lord. At the table of the to the table of the Lord. I'm invited to the table of the Lord. He says, come just as you are to his table. 